Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Today, we will hear from USCIS CISO Shane Barney, one of federal cybersecurity's most prolific pioneers. USCIS was one of the first civilian agencies to shift IT operations from legacy IT infrastructure to the cloud, which prepared the agency to lead in cybersecurity strategy. USCIS was an early adopter of zero trust and AI to improve cybersecurity, which only recently became trendy buzzwords within the federal cyber community. Barney, who has been with USCIS for seven years, said the White House executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity made zero trust real in a way it hadn't been before. Barney's been in the cyber business for a long time. He believes there are some misconceptions about zero trust that could hamper the federal government's journey to transform cybersecurity. The first misconception on the table, the idea that you can ever fully implement or achieve zero trust. The first thing I think everyone needs to understand about zero trust, it is, a, it is not a project. It, it's a journey, and the journey really technically has no end. So you're just going to get on this path, and you're just going to keep going. And so, you know, everyone kind of thinks there's a, this mis kind of conception about it that, oh, we'll just create a project around it. We'll put milestones and we'll, we'll map it all out. And then when we're done, you will never be done. You know, so that's kind of that, that first real big eye-opening event. And it's really, you know, and I really actually have issues with the zero trust terminology, period. Because we're not talking about zero trust. That's actually not what zero trust is all about. We're actually talking about asset trust. We're actually going much deeper and much lower than most people understand it to be. Because when you start talking about assets, then you're also including things like not just your users, which is kind of the focus of Zero Trust right now. Um, You're also including servers. You're including all your cloud assets and all the infrastructure that supports that. You're including your data. You're including how data moves from one location to another. All those sorts of assets within the things that define your enterprise suddenly become part of this, or this, this new process, this new program you're doing. Before any federal agency can embark on the zero trust journey, they have to define what trust is and understand that there are limits of a zero trust-based enterprise. Okay, where are our gaps and where are we missing? You know, and so you know, we are building around the kind of core pillars, the identity, the devices, the networks, the applications, the data, you know, but to that, you know, I would also add the importance of a TIC 3.0 deployment. That's going to be critical to doing zero trust. It, it's going to be the enabler of all things cloud to begin with, for one. But it really is going to be allow a user to go from their you know, remote work site, their house, their, their office, wherever that is, and go direct to, to cloud assets on the public internet. You've, you've got to have a TIC point, you know, 3, 3.0 TIC deployed and in operation to make this all work. So, you know, we do, we are actively working that as well. When it comes to cyber strategy, USCIS excels in several key areas. Barney said prioritizing identity security helped USCIS better protect its data in the cloud. USCIS has really done an amazing job with ICANN. You know, ICANN has been around since the HSPD 12 days, nothing new to this federal space. Yet you could literally count, probably with one finger, how many agencies have actually been done you know, single sign-on, 100% across the organization, 
implemented role-based access for you know nearly for us 97.3 percent of our applications um and oh by the way linked it into your you know physical security system as well and that would be cis we managed to do it having a hundred percent single sign-on adds so much value to the organization it just defies understanding you know not just from the sort of traditional things in terms of you know ease of use for the user which is a big deal for us but really on a security front, I mean, things that really freak other organizations out, like credential phishing, phishing I don't care. You can fish us all day long. You're not going to get anything. You, you don't have the tokens. You're not going anywhere with it. Even if they give you the PIN number, you're still going to have to go figure out a way to get that card from an individual. Not an easy thing. You know, having single sign-on as, as a backbone to the organization, all of our applications being built onto that infrastructure has just been a major, major win for us. Um, and, it, and it really makes us stand out. There is no other organization within DHS that's 100%, not even close. And, and really, the reason that was successful, we look back to what Mark did years ago, he made identity security and ICAM a, an ass, a, a function of, of the CISO office. So I own I, the ICAM program. In most organizations, ICAM is either completely separate or it's owned by the, you know, the security, the physical security guys. And, and so it's kind of faltered and stopped and faltered and stopped over the years. By owning it, we were able to tie, if an organization was coming with a new application or, or they were going to do some pieces, you know, we would ask, the question was simple. Well, is your application single sign-on compliant? Well, no. Oh, well, then you're not releasing and you're not getting an authorization to operate. Oh, well, okay, we'll go back and do that. Um, and so suddenly, literally overnight, within about a nine-month period of time, we went from two applications in the enterprise being single sign-on to all of them being single sign-on because it became a requirement. And it drove it. Um, we also made some. We also took some interesting approaches on the ICAM side as well to help. We took a very easy button approach to how we do ICAM. In other words, I actually have a development team. The development teams that work for me on the ICAM side, they built out sort of like an easy button approach to, to doing role-based access as well as single sign-on for all of our applications. So it offloaded that responsibility from the development teams on the system side. They love it. It, it, it literally is plug and play for them. And, and they, they would not, if I tried to ever undo that, they would probably come after me with pitchforks and, and knives and all kinds of stuff because it's just really been so successful. And, and the role-based access is the exact same thing where we've developed the systems and the workflows and the authorizations needed that relieves them of that responsibility. So that one, it, it frees up resources on their side, but more importantly, if they get an audit from the IG or if they get questions from a FOIA thing, it becomes the ICAMS team's responsibility to, to deal with anything related to identity security and role-based access to their systems. And it doesn't require them to do anything. And of course, you have the dashboarding and automation from that as well. So it really does help. Um, but we've also taken some other innovative steps just recently, you know, deploying secrets management. Cloud security and secrets management go hand in hand. If you're in cloud and you're not doing your, and you're not managing your secrets, you're going to get yourself in trouble very quickly. And this is something we've learned from very painful experiences in the past. And again, we took that sort of easy button approach where we, we focused in on making the use of the secrets management tool set easy. And it, it's, the whole thing is API driven. It can store your database passwords. It stores your systems passwords, your, your, AW, your AWS keys, and, and manages it for you. So, you know, the dev teams, matter of fact, during, during the pandemic when USCIS was facing some budget um, shortfalls, we had considered like peeling back secret management and not supporting any new systems or even really some of the existing systems. And the all of the development teams, you know, all of the different development organizations within USAS rose up in, in, in horror that we would do such a thing and offered to fund it out of budgets to keep it going. It meant that much to them. 
So you know, we've been very successful at selling identity security. Barney believes the cyber threat landscape is more volatile and nefarious than ever before. This means cyber strategies and cyber defense need to keep up with cyber attacks that can infiltrate network infrastructure in milliseconds. Emerging risks become the big factor. Um, the speed and velocity of the cloud, you know, it works in both directions in the sense that it, it, it's, it's amazing what we're capable of doing with cloud. And, and the ability to scale and, and, and you know and move and, and change and adapt as we need to, but at the same time, that also means that any you know any threat actors out there can leverage the same resources against us. So your threat landscape is constantly changing and shifting. You know what what caused me all kinds of worry and concern even six months ago are, are not necessarily the same things today. Those emerging risks are really really important. You know, in terms of dealing with them and how we handle find out, especially on the emerging risk side, for us, automating the cyber intelligence aspects are critical. You know, for me, intelligence in the larger scheme of things, especially in the cyber side, is only, only good if it's timely, it's actionable, and applicable. In other words, you know, if I don't get it in time to stop the adversary from getting in, or if, I, if, it's, if it's something that doesn't even apply to me, or, you know, if it's something that I can take action on, then it's not really intelligence because it's not smart enough to actually do anything for me and add value. So those three, you meet those three primers, but then you have to automate it. When you're talking a, an organization, especially cloud-based organizations like USCIS, the volume of information and the, the way the enterprise operates and shifts and moves and, and twists and turns and does all kinds of crazy cloudy, cloudy things, you, you have to be able to stand on top of that. You have to be able to automate and move and, and adapt as quickly as they do. Um, so, and, and so that, that's part of it. Um, we're also really heavily focused on automating our known risks. You know, from my perspective, anything that's currently captured in our NIST guidance or any other the other you know, millions of regulations that we seem to have to have, we know about those. Those are risks that we know about. In other words, I shouldn't be spending time and energy and resources on things that I already know are there. So what I need to do, though, is I need to automate our response to that. I need to automate both the, the fix of it, whatever the fix is, the mitigation of it. I need to automate the alerting that's required. And I need to make sure that I also automate any feedback loops to ensure that that risk remains mitigated. Very, very critical, that feedback piece. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, solar winds and some of the other events that we've faced have taught us that the emerging risks present a significant a significant, you know, overall sort of uh, danger to federal agencies and, and, and even in the industry side as well, in terms of how we've always sort of done business on the, on the cybersecurity side. I'm um, speaking primarily for federal government right now. Um, industry seems to be a little, in some cases, in some areas anyway, a little bit further ahead of us on this. So really what I'm getting here at is that sort of next generation security organization, you know, and, and what that looks like and how that has to handle those emerging risks. Um, really what it's focused on is, is really this sort of notion of threat hunting, whereas you, you begin to free up your resources through automation so that they can then go after all of your unknowns. That's your emerging risk is those unknowns. The key to keeping up with an almost impossible cyber threat landscape is automation. The ability to do security automation has become a hallmark of the USCIS security program. We are, you know, USCIS currently leads the Center of Excellence for SOC Automation for the department as well as the driving force behind it for CBM and, and its incorporation of SOAR products and related activities. You know, just by way of example, since January of 20, uh, yeah, since January, January 1st of this year, end of calendar year, 
we have actually, MySock has performed 1.9 million automations. This means that we've saved almost 11,000 labor hours in terms of things we're no longer doing manually, which, which roughly works out to be about $9 million that we're able to reinvest into the security program. That's unreal. So that's like miserable return on investment success. You know, I've got a great team behind me, which I can take all the credit for it. I cannot. I've got this amazing SOCOT team that really understands this technology and understands its deployments. But it's become a focal point for my entire security program because it's got to be more than just SOC. And so now, now that we're really, really moving fast and furious on the SOC side, we're going to start focusing on other things. Like, why aren't we doing FISMA controls? All of FISMA should be automated as far as I'm concerned. You know, all of our governance pieces should be automated. All of our risk management should be automated. Even our documentation should be automated. There's no reason we're still doing documentation the way we've been doing it since the 1960s. All that needs to be automated so that we can focus in on that threat hunting sort of unknown risks um, and freeing up those resources. Really, for me, and, and especially on the SOC automation side, on the security automation side, the end, the end state goal here is really automatic APO. I mean, that's the goal. That's the, that's the nirvana we're after. Um, I think we can do it. I'm, I, I'm almost sure of it, actually. I know we can. If basic cyber defense responses are automated, cyber professionals can focus on threat hunting and get ahead of potential attacks. Barney wants his cyber employees to treat cyber as code and sift through lines of it, hunting threats. Obviously, supply chain has really gotten a lot of attention lately. USCIS has had supply chain issues for a while. Every organization does, but ours are a little unique. Um, for us, code has actually become a supply chain. It's part of our overall organization because if your infrastructure is code, well, your security is code too. So you know you have to you have to look at the code and the way your your organization is built, the way it codes its applications as a supply chain risk because we leverage a tremendous amount of open source code. So you know in order for us to you know we need to make sure that we account for that. And I'm a big proponent, by the way, of open source code. I really think we ought to shift to it overall because it, it does help counter that risk associated with supply chain. But we have to make sure that if you're going to leverage open source code like we do and, and from these various containers around, literally around the world, um, you need to make sure you are the one compiling the code and not just taking compiled, pre-compiled code, which a lot of organizations do. They claim, they claim, oh, yeah, we're open source, but we're going to use somebody else's compilation of that. You know, they're going to compile it for us. You, know, you got to do the work yourself. Um, you also you got to make sure you have all the proper gates and, and tools in place that do all the, you know, the automated scanning. You know, as the code comes in, you also have to make sure you track where that code exists and lives in your enterprise. Um, because if something does happen, where and we've, we've actually had this happen, where code we get an alert that hey, some bad actor embedded something you know, into a piece of code that, that your organization is using. You know, when you're talking applications of the size of like LS and my USCIS and some of our larger applications you know, millions upon millions upon tens of millions, hundreds of millions of lines of code, going and finding a very specific snippet of code is going to be a challenge. Whereas you have to make sure you understand how you're plugging all those pieces of code all throughout your organization. So if something comes up, you can go in and remove it strategically and not have to bring down the whole application to make that happen. And really for me, the big thing for supply chain is moving towards more of a base layer of security. This goes back to, you know, getting away from sort of like the compliance mindset, but really building in security at a very deep level so it inherits up. And so everything that sits on top of it and rides on top of that is automatically inheriting all of those known, you know, the mitigations for your known risks. And they can't, you know, for them, the sky is blue. It'll always be blue. It never changes because that's what they've inherited. That's the environment. 
DevSecOps is a hallmark of DHS IT, but the concept of DevSecOps doesn't really work for USCIS in today's cyber environment. And the reason it's not working is not because the principles aren't sound, the principles are sound, or that we're implementing it incorrectly, we're doing what we believe to be the correct processes. The problem is, is when organizations like USCIS begin moving at the velocity, the scale, and the speed that we do, you don't staffing the security piece of DevOps becomes exceptionally difficult. And, and, and so now you're right back into the old game of do I have enough resources to do this? And, and that's the problem. And what I never, what I can't have is security being the short stick in, in, in all this, you know, preventing the, 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 the forward velocity of the development project. Um, and, and because once that happens, that's when security starts getting ignored. That's when they look to circumvent security. You know, you want to make sure that, again, you want easy button security approaches. And DevSecOps at scale, and especially with us and our operations, it's not meeting that requirement. And more importantly, though, is USCIS is beginning to shift away from sort of the DevOps principles of deployment. And now we're heading into the microservices world um, and serverless, actually, in some cases. That is a game changer for security programs. I, I can't even begin to stress enough what a game changer that is. I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan, actually, primarily because microservices and the way microservices operate, that sort of taking a major, huge, monstrous application and breaking into a thousand components and pieces and parts allows, allows a security program to focus in on, on various pieces and parts. But more importantly, because each piece and part is not huge and monolithic in nature, your sort of threat landscape and your, your actually threat, uh, you know, your threat surface is actually reduced. So it actually makes my job easier in, in some respect. One of Barney's biggest cyber challenges right now is not having enough talent to keep up with cyber threats. He believes pay inequities between private industry and the federal government plays a role. If a talented cyber professional can make six figures in the private sector, why would they consider a lower-paying government job, even with benefits? Even industry is struggling with this one, and primarily because, not because there's not really great talent out there, it's just there's not quite enough of it. <laughs> not even close, actually. And so really, you know, for us, you know, leveraging, of course, you just announced their new uh, cyber talent management system that's gone live. That's going to be of value to us. It allows us some different pay scales and, and access to talent in different, different ways and unique ways. Obviously, we'll be utilizing that. Um, looking even internally within the organization, you know, looking to diversify my staff and their training skill sets and moving them in different directions is really critical. We, we spend a lot of time on that. And, and really, and out of the pandemic, one of the more interesting things we've, we've come to, to understand is the use of remote workers. You know, prior to the pandemic, I, you know, we, we weren't opposed to remote work. But I wouldn't say we embraced it wholeheartedly either. And so I, I think that the pandemic showed that, hey, guess what? There are, there are definitely positions, even within cybersecurity, that can operate remotely just fine. And in fact, probably better in some ways. Um, and so leveraging remote workers and the ability to employ more remote workers is going to be critical for us stopping that sort of workforce you know, issue. So that imbalance is, is something nobody in the federal space likes to talk about. They don't like talking about pay equity um, very much. I, I'm not even sure why. It's a factor. You have to consider it. You know, it's not it's not everything. In other words, just if we match pay across the spectrum, it wouldn't solve the workforce problem. The workforce problem is much larger than that. But it is an element of it that we have to factor in. 
not the cyber power management system that DHS has deployed does actually help. I, I forget the upper limits of it, but it, it basically allows you to pay. I, I mean, don't necessarily quote me on this, but I believe it's up to the level of the vice president. So whatever vice president makes, I think it's 200 and something, 280,000, I think. Um, that's obviously a big thing for us. You know, for me to be able to bring in a non-SES, but these are non-senior you know, executive services uh, employees and pay them at that scale, that's going to allow me to at least start matching industry. Um, and that's important. You know, really, but other factors are things like hiring practices. How are we going to, you know, onboarding people is very, very lengthy in the federal space. You know, you know getting people on board can take a lot of time. You know, strength, reducing that kind of onboarding process and helping us get people on, on faster. I think the other piece of workforce on the workforce front is going to be partnering with industry. SolarWinds taught us that in spades. We're all in this together, especially now, especially when you're talking about cloud environments, because what impacts me in my cloud environment, odds are going to impact others. It's just the nature of the game. And, and so partnering with industry in a very, very real way, and I, I'm not talking about you know, a quarterly meeting where we get together, you know, and all sing kumbaya and hold hands and, and roast marshmallows. I, I'm talking about, hey, you know, a phone call being made from, I'll just pick up Microsoft. Microsoft saying, hey, you know, USAS, we, we have an issue. We're not sure if it's impacting you. Let's coordinate this. Let's work this together. I'm going to put your sock in touch with my sock and we're going to do this in real time. That's a partnership. Going forward, Barney said cybersecurity has to be the number one job for IT professionals across the federal government. If you can get cyber right the first time, then you're not playing catch-up when you get hit by catastrophic cyber attacks. From USS's perspective, you know, security is really the job one. Um, I've always loved Amazon's philosophy when it comes to stuff like that, where you know security takes precedence because you know, USCIS can do all these really amazing, cool development efforts in cloud and technology, utilizing, you know, SaaS services, all these really amazing things. But if we get the security wrong on that and, and say we get, a, you know, a massive data breach or, you know, something like that happens, all of that goes out the window. Mm -hmm. All of that just is gone. Nobody's going to care at that point. What they're going to care about is how you failed at security. They're not going to care about how uber cool your development program was. And, and so really getting security right up front and, and doing it right the first time and not and, and trying to avoid, you know, some of the pitfalls of, you know, compliance mindset and checkbox security that tends to be rampant in, in the federal space really is key to our future success. It's been a tumultuous cyber year for federal agencies navigating a rocky cyber landscape. Even cyber pioneers like Barney face tougher challenges than ever as cyber attacks multiply and cyber jobs remain unfilled. If federal agencies can pivot quickly to address new trends and upskill current workers to handle cybersecurity demands, they can get ahead of some of the most malicious actors. Every other news headline is about federal cybersecurity or the latest hack. To get deep analysis and insider perspectives on what's trending in federal cybersecurity, subscribe to Cybercast and visit our website at governmentciomedia.com. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts.
If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. 